uh, we um, left off right in the beginning of the fourth council. I'm introducing, or I introduced last week, the initial issue that rose up um, that the fourth council is going to deal with, and that's another interpretation on Jesus as God-man, and it's sort of the opposite tendency or reaction of the last view we just talked about called Nestorianism. So we're going to be looking at Eutychianism. I already went over that really briefly. I'll cover it quickly yet again, just in case. But to give you some background, the first view that the Third Council dealt with, with is Nestorianism. And this view, which is, I mentioned, it's a very common view among evangelicals. They don't realize they're doing this, but it's the go-to problematic view of evangelicals regarding how is Jesus God and man at the same time. They'll tend to separate out the natures far enough so it's almost like there's two people and thus some will have a hard time saying about the one person Jesus what is true about both natures. So statements like Mary is God-bearer, Mary gave birth to God, that sounds strikingly problematic to some and that's showing some Nestorian tendency, right? So we talked about that. It tends to divide the natures apart. Uh, that's Nestorius's view. Well, Eutyches, a monk of the East, um, didn't mean for his view to go in this direction, but it certainly has these implications. In the opposite direction, instead of dividing the two nature, natures, he thinks in terms of them being added and even mixed together. Uh, and, and thus, for Eutychianism, he uh, in the end suggests that Jesus is not so much God-man, but a mixture of the two. So much so that he is even a third substance altogether. That's the tertium quid, a third substance. He's neither God nor man, but he's a mixture. Kind of like salt, water, salt water. It's not salt anymore. It's not water anymore. It's salt water. Right, So he is going to be mixing the two, and this fourth council is called to, how do we discuss how is Jesus God and human at the same time? Once and for all, and this one resolves a lot of the tensions, not all of them, but we ended with the fourth, so we won't, um, we, we, I'll, I'll briefly cover the fifth. The council uh, was very dependent on the writings of one individual, and I think I left off here last week, and that is uh, the great bishop of Rome. He's called Pope Leo I. He gets the title, along with Gregory I, uh, the great, because he was a pretty awesome leader. Notice the years here. The 400s were a very uh, difficult time for the Roman Empire. Things are going up and down. And there's even a void of leadership in Rome. And Leo tends to take over uh, in the midst of there being a void. He didn't want to be a political leader, but, well, there's no one else to lead. And that's the makings of the modern papacy, but you really need another thousand years to cover that, just so you know. Um, so personal uh, temperament is something I kind of like to cover with Leo because it describes well what he does theologically. His temperament is a very accommodating one. He's not somebody who has really hard opinions about everything, but he does have, he's pretty opinionated about the essentials of the gospel and of the faith. 
But about difficult, obscure, mysterious matters, he tends to want to just say, well, don't go in the, extre- in the directions of the extremes of these problematic positions. Think somewhere in between the lines. That's basically his temperament, and it's a wise temperament. It's good at facilitating, at managing, at leading. He was very well respected for that. You maybe heard of Pope Leo here because he's well known for uh, negotiating Rome's safety to Attila the Hun. The Huns, this is that era where the Huns are getting uh, ginormous and extending into Europe, sacking a lot of villages along the way. Rome had already been sacked, um, but Leo's best known perhaps, at least in secular history, for um, negotiating with him and convincing him not to sack Rome again. I don't know what he said, but good for him. And I already mentioned his position on theological issues. He was a first things first kind of guy. Let's not get bogged down in obscure matters. Um, But we do want to talk well about Jesus as God and human, and I'll mention his take on that when we get to the council Uh, He's best known for writing a book. Still, you can find this open access, the tome. This is a book that deals with Jesus as God-man, among other things. And uh, he's maybe best known for extending the power, often unwillingly uh, or unknowingly, uh, wittingly, right, unknowingly, uh, the power of the Roman bishop. And so... After Leo and definitely Gregory, and and a little bit before Leo too with Boniface and others, you have Roman bishops declaring really uh, new radical things about what we have. We're the true uh, Western Roman bishops. We are the bishops of the bishops. And you get some of that with him. And remember the reason why. There's an emperor. uh, There's a void in leadership. The emperor's not there half the time. The emperor's dead most of the time. And, well, who's going to step up? People are starving. Who do you look to? Your church leader. It's just sort of the way things work, right? Kind of imagine a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, It's a very different world. Imagine bashes being shut down and fries being shut down. The empire is crumbling. Where do you go? You farm your food. Where do you go if you're desperate? There's no more secular leadership. They've been killed by the barbarians. But the barbarians were superstitious folk. And so they wouldn't touch those bishops. And so you have all these bishops that were left. Anyway, long story short, let's move on to this fourth ecumenical council. Without much further ado, the definition of faith coming out of this fourth ecumenical council. Here's the most important part of language that I want us all to highlight. And it's answering the question, how can Jesus be God and human at the same time? Here's the language. The one and the same Son, only begotten God, is one Christ, one person, in two natures, united in one person or hypostasis. Notice he's using the language of Latin here, persona and hypostasis Greek. Yet remaining without confusion, without conversion, that means change, without division, without separation. That's the most important part. If you're going to remember anything from at least this part of the talk today, remember these words, those four adverbs, without confusion, without conversion, without division, without separation. 
That is how he and others are proposing to see the two natures in the one person or hypostasis. At no point, it continues, most of this is Leo's language, but this is the definition of faith. At no point, oh, sorry about the typo, at no point was the difference between the natures taken away because of the union, but rather the distinctive character of each nature being preserved. Thus, human is still human, God is still God, there's not a mixing, and each coming together in one person and a single subsistent being. You'll sometimes hear this shortened to subsistence. For all intents and purposes, that's just hypostasis or person. It gets kind of technical, but that's okay. So what's going on here? Uh, the basic point that I want you guys to get, the four adverbs there, those are what stand out and clarify discussion moving forward. Notice the first two adverbs, confusion and conversion. There's no confusion or conversion between the two natures. This is against mixing or mingling, right? The God and human and Jesus is not mixing together, producing a third substance or something like that. Moreover, there's no mixture in any way that might lead to a change, or at least a radical change. Certainly, God's nature didn't change. It's not taking on human properties or something silly like that, right? So that's the first two adverbs against mingling or change. Now, those are the two most controversial adverbs because Christians do promote an interaction between the two natures. You have to, uh, and we'll talk about why. Uh, but don't misunderstand Leo and this council. What they're saying is there's not an improper mixing to the point of change, or in other words, a third substance. Those that, that God and human are not mixing together to produce a third substance. The second two adverbs are against dividing. This one's maybe more obvious because we talked a lot about Nestorius last week. Uh, without division, without separation. So there's two natures. They're not divided, they're distinct, but they're not divided. They're not separated unto the point of as if there's two people, as if Jesus is sometimes like acting and that's like the God part of them, and then other times when he's acting, that's the human part of them. Don't do that. This is one and the same Christ. It's one and the same person. So that's a quick introduction to things, and there's going to be some necessary commentary that I'll give soon, but here's, I kind of like to give this diagram, I didn't make it, um, but it shows one way to visualize this, and uh, I, I hate turning, you know, my classes into this, but it's sometimes fun to do, name that heresy, right? Now, this diagram, it's helpful because we like visualizations, and there's nothing problematic about, well, most of it, but there's one word certainly and arguably something else that is showing a propensity towards a certain point of view that's problematic. Notice we have, uh, it's, it's a diagram, there's one divine nature, there's three instantiations of that nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son, at a certain point in time, took on a rectangular human nature, adding human flesh to himself, the divine person adding a human nature to himself. And now, now we're focusing on the Son, uh, he acts through here, either. 
Uh, I know I, almost every time, at least if I'm teaching it okay, my students will be like, that doesn't sound right. That's Nestorian, right? When you act through either nature. A better word here would just be both, incessantly and always, right? Every time the sun acts, it says God-man. And you can't separate a nature out of that. When you see Jesus doing miracles, you can't like separate his humanness out of that. Oh, that's just the God part. You can't do that. When he suffers, you can't just, oh, that's just the human part. No, you can say God suffers. The one and the same son suffers. So you can't just separate it out. And so either does have a Nestorian tendency. So just be aware of that. But I, my students kind of like this diagram, so I, so I like to use it and then show, you know, one word makes a really big difference. And suddenly you're visualizing the sun in the Gospels in a way, well, that can actually account for your salvation. So that that sun dying on the cross is God-man. God died in virtue of being human, right? So now this is going to sound like Dr. Seuss. I'm just having a little bit of fun here. Um, but a summary of the Trinity and then the incarnation is the difference between whatness and whoness. Um, in the Trinity, there's three who's, hypostases, right, persons, one what, essence, nature, depending on what language you prefer. In Christ, in the incarnation, in the person of the Son, there are two what's, nature, substance, whatever you like, and one who. So um, if that leads to any clarity, great. If it doesn't and it confuses you, you just forget that we went over this. Um, I, I like to visualize it this way because when, when, when you kind of see what's wrong, what's so close but what's wrong, it kind of directs your thoughts in a greater and more clear way. Now, before moving on and summarizing everything, I do want to give a few reflections on this council. It's very basic in the sense that it's coming against Nestorius, pulling apart the natures, and Eutyches, blending them together. So it's very simple, but on a, on a deeper level, this is one of the more difficult, challenging councils. And the reason is, even after the East and the West disagreed about some things. Um, but we, we just mentioned this uh, basic reflection here, but when you look at Jesus, you're seeing a hypostatic union, a personal union between God and human. He's fully God and he's fully human in a way that they're not mixing or dividing. Neither confusion, which I know we don't use that word that way anymore, but uh, confusing is mixing, nor division. Now, a second point that's implicit, or it's explicit elsewhere uh, during the, in, in the documents, but something I haven't explicitly covered yet, is the idea of communication of properties. This is going to be taken up in the Reformation in a really interesting, fascinating way, uh, but I'm just going to keep it simple for now. The idea of the communication of properties, that's between Jesus' two natures. It's affirmed. In other words, you can say that God died. God suffers. But God can't suffer. In the person of the Son, he does, because he takes on a human nature, right? Or you can say even something like this, although you have to be really clear for reasons we're not going to go over, uh, very precise on how you say this, but you can say a human being holds the world together. A human being is God, 
That's pretty cool. That baby in Mary's arms is holding Mary's heart together and making it go boom, 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 boom. And it leads to all kinds of interesting and fun. Um, well, just think about your thought life here. So communication of properties is affirmed. There's not mixing going on, but what is spoken of both natures needs to be spoken of the one son. So if the son suffers in virtue of being human, you can just say God suffers. Now, uh, kind of, we don't need to cover all this, but the definition is trying to be super ecumenical, and it is to some degree. It does favor Leo's language. Leo isn't necessarily the writer, but they, the, the writers of this document really liked Leo, and so they borrowed from him a bit more, although there's other people um, that they're using. And I mention this because there's, it favors Leo to such an extent that some argue it leads to some problems. This fourth, fourth council could be a bit more clear about some things. For example, there's no mention of hypostatic union. Not, not in the fourth ecumenical council. There is later in the fifth. And hypostatic union helps avoid Nestorian tendencies. Let me just say it this way. A lot of Nestorians can, can read the fourth ecumenical council and go, yeah, I affirm that. And there's reasons for it. Leo kind of had a tendency, you could argue, in that direction. This is an ongoing debate between the East and the West as well. We don't need to nerd out too much. But it's something to be aware of. If you ever you know, have any Greek Orthodox friends, the West tends to use the language of in. Christ exists in two natures. Christ is in two natures. The East prefers out of, or just of for short. Christ exists in out of two natures. And th this is showing, it sounds really stupid and silly, but it's actually very real differences. The East tends to see Christ in a more unified way, in a more united way. The two natures is more implicit. They want to get across the one person. The West, the one person is sometimes a bit more implicit, but the two natures is highlighted. And this shows just in the preposition there. Um, so just an interesting thing to be aware of. This is a major point of controversy in the East today. And this is where everyone actually has a little bit of an ongoing problem. And I brought this up last week. That there is some communication between God and human and Jesus. There has to be. Our salvation is based upon it even. That the, the two first adverbs that I mentioned, without confusion and without conversion, it seems to exclude this idea that humanity, I'm going to say it because you see the words and you're uncomfortable, but I, just trust me, people in our tradition say this. Um, this is Edwards, Calvin, Spurgeon, you name it. The traditional view is to say that humanity is raised, is deified in Christ. It's not the same humanity of before. It's not edemic humanity, right? And what this means is um, it's glorified or deified. That's the traditional view, and that's the beauty of the gospel. And I can, we can talk more about that if you like. Um, but that phrase, if you misunderstand it, it might seem to exclude this idea that the divinity raises humanity to some extent. Not to the same level. No one thinks that. 
but it raises humanity to a higher state. What does this look like? If you want to know what this looks like, read the end of the Gospel of John, and Jesus is doing weird stuff after the resurrection. You ever notice that? You're reading it. He's eating fish. Don't get me wrong. He's human. But his humanity's like, is he walking through walls or something? The door doesn't open. Uh, remember, the women after the resurrection, they don't recognize him. You've been with Jesus for three years. What do you mean you don't recognize him? What's going on here? Ah, this. It's not Adamic humanity. It's a greater form that's united to God. All right. So just be aware that those first two adverbs are an ongoing discussion. It's just something to consider. Um, so uh, the kind of point being, I, you, you sometimes hear, uh, the Fourth Ecumenical Council, my least favorite. You know, you'll sometimes hear people say it because of its alleged Nestorian overtones. We don't need to focus on this. I'm going to move on. By the way, the West also for a while rejected the Fourth Ecumenical Council because it made Constantinople and Rome equals. This is politics. We can just move on. Politics is nothing new. Lots of interesting reflections here and unexpected twists. By the way, if you want to know more about how this works, if you want I'm always recommending books because if you just end here, it's, it's just, you, you got to keep meditating on this stuff. And a couple that I'll start with in this context that talk about everything we're talking about without like sounding strange. Um, on the Incarnation, yet again, I did recommend this before. Athanasius loves to be summarizing everything we're talking about right now. Um, also Trinitarian stuff. This is a cheap book. It's a Greek writer who the West, the West sympathizes with. And so he's kind of used by everyone. And then also, this is a very J.I. Packer-like book. Perhaps you've heard, oh, well, there you go, Forward by J.I. Packer. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Knowing God? This is Knowing Christ. It is our tradition's quick summary. This is really readable. This is very easily, very readable. Um, there's not even footnotes. I hate that, but there's not even footnotes. Um, and it's a great summary from our tradition's perspective on knowing Christ as God, man, and other such issues. Great stuff. Oh, sorry. This is by Mark Jones. Relatively cheap as well. And I'll recommend some stuff more later. Um, whenever I go over these subjects, I, I, I always have to emphasize to my students, when I started studying this stuff, the primaries, I was, I was shocked because this isn't the same. It's just way more glorious than you think. These thinking about this stuff and the answers it provides sound positively foreign because they're not covered well sometimes in some churches today. Now, before I move on and quickly digress into, a, a, you know, the fifth sixth, seventh councils, I want to mention that there's an ongoing debate between the two, uh, well, I, I think I have it here, I, think I, I like how I say it, uh, between, I don't know what I said, but the, the two, uh, two different reformational brands. So let's fast forward 500 years for a second, sorry, 1,000 years, 1,100 years or so into the future, uh, and you have these two brands that are called Lutheran. You've probably heard of that. There's Lutheran churches in town. Not many, but there's some. And Reformed, which means Protestant, but not Lutheran. That's all that means. I know it's been misunderstood in our times. 
Reform means Protestant, but not Lutheran. And there's two different, these two different brands of the Protestant Reformation had two different positions on the incarnation. How to think about these things. And we're going to see that one has a tendency towards one view, and one has a tendency towards the other, Eutyches and Nestorius. Neither one of them is heretical, but they have tendencies towards one or the other, and that's where we're at today. And I thought I would just quickly cover this just so that you're aware that there's different ways of thinking about. Because now I want us all to imagine, how is Jesus God and human at the same time? Christianity, and something I did not make clear yet, I'll put this away just for clarity's sake at the moment, Leo, um, even Cyril of Alexandria, they didn't believe there's necessarily one position on this. With the Trinity, there's very precise language to use to avoid problems. With how is Jesus God and human at the same time, it's avoid the extremes. That's the answer. You heard it in the adverbs. Did you notice how it doesn't tell you exactly how to imagine it? Don't divide it, don't mix it. You see that? And so it leads a lot of room for you and me to imagine it and conceive of it. And consistently speaking, there's two options here. One option, the Lutherans, and, and, and actually some Eastern Orthodox have this tendency. And then the other option, the Reformed, and many Roman Catholics also have that tendency. And I'm going to just quickly mention these two types as you try to imagine how is Jesus God and human at the same time. Now Martin Luther's big thing, just you know, kind of have to warn uh, just from the get-go, Martin Luther's famously not a very consistent synthetic thinker. He'll often contradict himself. Um, but this is one point that he did not back down. And there is a mysterious way to how he articulates this. If you don't have a Lutheran background, it'll sound different. But he didn't emphasize the communication of properties. That's, of course, fine. But he would even take that a step further. So Luther and later Lutherans, uh, they were called Martinians early on. Uh, that's not as catchy. Sounds like Martians, too. Um, they're named after his first name first and then his second name. Um, they would eventually start arguing. He would even argue that there is a, some sort of interaction between God and human and Christ. Even beyond just communication of properties, there's even a little bit of mixing. Not a tertium quid, nothing like that. So how did he argue this? Well, he argued that God's omni-attributes, like omni omnipresence especially, he's thinking especially of omnipresence here, is uh, communicated to Christ's human nature. Okay? So this is how Martin Luther would explain, just to jump the gun a little bit, or maybe I need to tell you, Martin Luther held that Jesus is physically present in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper. Now, the way he did this is more sophisticated than you're probably thinking. It sounds weird, but in the bread and the wine, Jesus, his humanity, is physically present in his own language, in, under, and around the elements of the bread and the wine. So Jesus is there, even humanly speaking. Why? Well, because in Christ... His humanity takes on some divine properties. All right, He's going a bit further than most Christians take it, but this isn't unheard of. Don't think it's unheard of. This is one, different, one way to approach it. And so he's going to end up 
saying it outright at times, implying it at other times, that Christ's body is present everywhere. And there's the phrase, in, under, and between. It's really in, under, and around is a better translation. The elements of the bread and the wine. Now, this is the classic Lutheran take. Not all Lutherans hold this. I should probably say it. Uh, Luther's mentor, uh, yeah, disciple, Melanchthon, rejected it just as one example. But most Lutherans that are um, evangelical tend towards this position today. Now, this leads to a really difficult question for Martin Luther and Lutheranism. I appreciate his really stark take on the issue and trying to deal very seriously with the communication between God and human. But how do you reconcile this, the mixing of God and human, to some small extent with the fact that Jesus was born, grew up, grew in wisdom and knowledge? Do you see where this is going? Um, How do you reconcile that? And so this leads to two suppositions, the second of which is very plausible, the first of which I wouldn't recommend. And the first view here is called the kenosis view. Just to be really blunt, this argues that that when the Son of God became human, he emptied himself of the divine attributes, at least the ones that are the omni-attributes, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, right? And that that Jesus laid those aside to become human. Otherwise, there's a contradiction in uh, some Lutheran's mind. I wouldn't affirm that. Traditional Christianity is going to say, as, you know, the son took on humanity, he did not lay aside any of his divinity. He did not lay aside his attributes. He remained God while adding humanity to himself. So other Lutherans, and many in our tradition as well, argue for a Crypsis view. And this is the idea that he did not lay aside, he didn't give up his divine attributes, but they're hidden. He's not using cheat codes, in other words. He's living the truly human life. And while he is holding the world together, he's not like using cheat codes, accessing the content of that in order to make himself feel better in the midst of suffering or something like that. This does lead in interesting directions. There's a lot of ways to go here. Again, this is where your imagination is actually beneficial. It's really interesting to think about how this works. Well, the Reformed Church had its own take on the Incarnation. Lutherans had a tendency, you're probably seeing it, towards Eutychianism. They're not Eutychians. Don't hear me say that. But the tendency is towards the oneness and even some mixing. Well, the Reformed Church has a tendency towards Nestorianism at times. By the way, Zwingli, kind of a blunt dude. He was a soldier, by the way. Even he was a former, um, what do you call it? You sell, you're fighting for money. Mercenary. He gave up being a mercenary and argued it's wrong. But early on, he was a mercenary. The Swiss were all mercenaries, and he was one of them. He's Swiss. Zwingli, uh, yeah, pretty blunt here. He actually argued, Luther, you're just a Eutychian all over again. That's not the best approach. But you do sometimes get that. And in order to avoid this Eutychian problem, Zwingli overshoots the other direction. And he tends to separate out the natures when he talks about the sun. Um, Now, this is, 
showing just a little bit of Nestorian overtone here, but it's not necessarily fully improper to say either. So here's the debate. I probably should have said it. Luther argued that Jesus, uh, Jesus' humanity, Jesus didn't ascend in the sense that now he's absent from the created universe. When he's talking about the ascension after the resurrection, Luther is very clear. Jesus is still here. And Zwingli is going to tend to carve it out a bit more. And he's like, well, the human part isn't here. Do you kind of hear what this sounds like? The human part isn't here. That's ascended. But the divine part's, of course, here. God, Jesus is here in virtue of being God. That was a better way to say it. Zwingli tended in this Nestorian direction. And I think it's fair to say he sometimes struggles with unity in the sun because of this. Other reformers, there's hundreds of them, by the way. But Calvin uh, articulated a way to think about this in a way that caught on and other Reformed churches follow. There's a lot of other Reformers we don't talk about very much, um, but uh, Calvin gets a lot of credit, just know he's not doing this alone. He argued um, something much more consistent with Leo, and he's arguing that the properties of... Actually, this is a really great summary of Calvin right here. The properties of each of Jesus' natures are preserved. His divine nature does not deify his human nature inappropriately. In other words, Luther, that's an inappropriate deifying. I don't even know, here's Calvin thinking, I don't even know what it's like to be omnipresent when I'm a bodily creature. What does that mean? It's like infinite atoms, your atoms are everywhere. What does that mean? So that's an inappropriate deifying, and he's going to reject that. But it does, he continues, and this is the traditional way to say it. How do the two interact in, 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 our, uh, in our tradition? Uh, it, it does deify, or glorify, if you like that term better, the human nature to its highest capacity. Its highest capacity. The analogy that... Leo likes to use, the early church likes to use, and Puritans and people uh, more uh, chronologically close to us, they like to use the analogy of iron and fire when they're talking about Jesus and, by extension, us. Imagine Jesus' divine nature as fire, the hottest fire, and our human nature as iron. And in the one person of the sun, humanity glorified, is deified to its highest capability. It's liquefied, it's smelted. And it becomes even partaking in fire, so to speak. Do you like this? It's still iron. It doesn't cease to be iron, but it's a higher, more beautiful, more divine partaking in iron, right? It's partaking in fire, right? So that's, that's, that comes from Calvin as well, and that becomes sort of a standard. How is he God and human at the same time? Well, imagine it this way, and then our, imagine our salvation. We get our humanness, not from Adam, fortunately, that's bad news. We get it from uh, Jesus as it's deified to its highest capability. So uh, Calvin is going to articulate this a bit more consistently. To be fair to Zwingli, he died a bit early. He died in battle in, in the Swiss Civil War. So he's often like untreated 
uh, treated fair, unfairly. I can't talk. He's treated unfairly. Uh, and Calvin was a very good synthetic thinker, and so he had a way of articulating stuff consistently. So this is how he and re most Reformed are going to take this. Jesus is omnipresent spiritually in virtue of his divine nature, but he's omnipresent physically in virtue of his human nature. So the one person you can claim both depending on what you mean. He's avoiding Zwingli's view because Zwingli's kind of pulling them apart and there's not a united person that he can really philosophically ground. Calvin's saying the one person of the Son is depending on what you're referring to both. I'm not going to say that Jesus is here present physically. I could be wrong. Luther might be right, right? But I'm not going to claim that. I think it's, it leads in wonky directions. But I will say the Son is obviously present everywhere, holding everything together, including you know, my brain as I'm teaching, including our thoughts as we're thinking, etc. And this is the idea, and it's one of those more, um, it's a fun point to debate. It's called the extra-Calvinisticum, really original. This is the idea that when you're looking, when you're imagining when the Son of God became human, and you're imagining the baby coming out of Mary and crying and all that, you're looking at the baby, and that is God. And that baby's also omnipresent, holding the world together. That's the extra. You wouldn't want to say, that's God, and God's just pooping himself at the moment. That same person is holding the world together. Now, the baby, in virtue of having a baby consciousness, isn't aware of it. So let me kind of explain it in a way that will make sense. When's the first time you realized you breathed? Does anybody remember the moment you're like, oh, yeah, I'm breathing? Interesting. You just do it, right? You don't know you do it, but you do it. And I don't know how old you were, like, you know, maybe four, maybe five, maybe seven. Like, maybe somebody told you and then you forgot and you had to re-remember. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. It's sometimes in our darkest moments we realize all the automatic stuff we do, uh, it's kind of like that. Now, here's the fun question. When did Jesus of Nazareth realize, I am holding the world together? Uh, that's a good analogy. He's doing it since the beginning, forever and always. But the consciousness, as you're talking to uh, the baby, the baby's pooping itself and it's not understanding your words. It's a baby. So do you see why there's this fun debate between Luther, Calvin, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and all the rest? There's two ways of imagining it consistently. I will tell you that. There are two. I'm not going to tell you the right answer. Use your imagination. And I'll kind of give you where, where um, different traditions set the boundary. And as long as you can affirm the one person of the Son, who is God and human, is doing it, you're going to be just fine. Notice here as we're covering this, you're, you're feeling this pull. Eutyches don't go to that extreme. You don't want to mix the two natures. That never leads in good directions. You also don't want to be Nestorian and make the divine and human unrelated. The gospel falls apart, quite frankly, if that's true. If the divine and the human are unrelated in Christ, then our humanity is edemic as well, and we're just going to fall again when we get to heaven. That's a long story short. There's a lot more to say. 
Um, the good news, just to sort of, I don't know, echo Jonathan Edwards, is our humanity is raised in God and all the benefits that that entails. I'm united to God. I can only choose the good in God. This is the new heavens and new earth. We still sin in the meantime, right? Um, yeah, all the holiness, the power, the beauty of God as Christ represents me. So here's an illustration of explaining to some degree where we've been. I realize I kind of have to wrap it up today. And unfortunately, I have like 15 minutes. And we can even maybe have more Q&A if we get through this, which is just fine. That is hard to read, unfortunately, isn't it? But here's a summary of some of the problematic views. Whenever you're thinking of how do, how do I think of the Trinity, how do I think of Jesus and God, God and human, don't try to get all technical in your head. I mean, I love that. Don't do that. Just think, what are the wrong answers? And how, how do I avoid them? That's where you start. And this is a great way to represent the, these wrong answers. They're very basic. Um, we have, uh, these probably won't be real familiar. That's okay. Arianism, remember, remember, denies that Jesus is fully God. Arius does affirm that Jesus is God to a great sense, but he's not the same Godness as the Father. We have Nestorianism, which denies that there's a union of Jesus' two natures. It tends to picture these two natures as unrelated, separate, not just distinct, but separate in a way that there's almost two people. It's almost like you're talking about two people. Eutychianism mixes all these together. We mentioned that. Uh, Eutyches, if it helps land with you, argued, or at least we think he did, this is a line apparently from Eutyches, that the humanity of Christ is like a drop of wine in the sea of his divinity. The human, human nature of Christ is like a drop of wine compared to the surpassing largeness of the ocean. And the two mixed. We can see why that's problematic. Apollinarianism denies that Jesus has a, uh, a human psyche or spirit, depending on what you mean by that. So when you're thinking about Jesus, and how do I imagine Jesus as God and human at the same time? Think in terms of this poll. Don't be Eutychian. Don't be Nestorian. Think between the lines. And I like to tell my students, this is usually, oops, this is usually where Christian theology is at. It's not so much here's the right answer. It's usually here's the wrong ones, now be creative. And the fourth council and the third council are great examples of that. Um, I'm going to move past this. Now, after the four, first four and seven councils, even after the first seven councils, there are some Christians that still reject uh, what you might call orthodoxy. I'm not going to cover this in detail. Just to make you aware uh, what orthodoxy has typically been, here's a great definition. It goes back since the early church and as articulated in the early medieval era. Orthodoxy is something that's universally acknowledged, the gospel, this good news since the beginning, 
Well, point two, antiquity. It's old. This isn't a new invention. I would be really worried if your theology is a new invention, right? If you're, you're totally new and original, it usually means you're, um, well, that's a her heresy, right? And then by all, believed everywhere, always by all, consensus. And this, of course, is an ongoing question. What exactly is orthodoxy? Does XYZ fit it? That's a, that's a man, that's a whole lifetime of debate right there. This is after the Fourth Ecumenical Council. Actually, it's technically right before 450, but that's close enough. And here's a great map. Sorry about the fudging. I just realized I can make it widescreen in a way I didn't know, and it's not fitting anymore. Here's the Roman Empire, and you see some of these views are still thriving, generally in the outskirts of the Roman Empire. Now, following the first four ecumenical councils, and then we're done, I, I would cover the first seven, but it would, I would have to fudge it. I, I'd really have to just rush through a lot of important stuff. So maybe we can do five, six, seven later on at some point, who knows, but... Um, just to give you a quick rehashing of the 5th, 6th, and 7th councils, here it is, very quick. The 5th council is one that's often uh, forgotten because many, many think that it's basically just, oh, it's like the 4th council all over again. There is some new discussion there that's interesting, um, but suffice it to say that it condemns Nestorianism a bit more clearly it's easy to be a Nestorian, like I said, and read the Fourth Council and be okay with it. The Third Council, uh, sorry, the Sixth Council, the Third Council of Constantinople, confused yet? Uh, the Sixth Council is really important because it helps us conceive of what's going on in the garden. That was a question from last week, the Garden of Gethsemane, where we have this not my will, but yours, your will be done, Father, What's going on there? Well, in this council, which is already affirmed, I think, in four, but more implicitly, it's going to affirm that Jesus has two wills, divine will, human will. Not in a Nestorian way. I know, all, you know my students are always like, sounds like Nestorian. No, there's only one action that the son does, and it's through both wills intertwined together. Right Now, there's times where the human will is more apparent, like in the garden, um, but don't act like his divine will isn't there, that he doesn't have one. If you think he doesn't have one, then you have a hard time justifying how does salvation work. If he's not, if he doesn't have a divine will, he's not God, just straight up. God has a will, right? If he doesn't have a human will, I have a human will, he's not human. And you can kind of quickly see if he doesn't have a human will, he can't really empathize with me. He's just got the cheat code. So again, how do you imagine this interplaying? Well, Lutheranism reformed, Lutheranism reformed, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. Nothing new there, but just be aware that the Sixth Council suggested two wills. It's a little more complicated. Again, this would take a long time. And the Seventh Council is one that a lot of evangelicals don't know what to do with, but it's pretty typical back then to hold this language. Um, and this is the idea, <clears throat> there's people back in, especially the 700s, that argued we ought not have icons in churches. What's an icon? An icon is a visual representation of the gospel for people that are illiterate, right? So you go to church, 
I remember as a kid doing this all the time, and you look at, like, banners and stuff. You Like, I can't understand what my pastor's talking about, so you zone out. Maybe if you have, like, high architecture, you're like, ooh, God's big. You know, stuff. that's what it's there for. That's the whole purpose. Well, they would have icons in the early church that would help, help illiterate people understand the nature of the gospel. And there was a debate about whether we ought to have them or not. And... Moreover, what is going on when we look at them? And the proper term used, and I realized the evangelical you is going to be uncomfortable, but that's fine. Um, the, the, the typical way of saying this is that we do not worship these icons, obviously, but we venerate Jesus through them. Right? These are a means to knowing Jesus. They don't have books at home. No one has, unless you have wealth or you're a monk with the library from your monastery, you don't have books at home. So these icons were ways of the common folk to see, understand, and taste Jesus. Uh, so that's what is, veneration is one of those slippery words that doesn't translate well into English. It means this, that the icons are a way of worshiping God through them. It's not about the icon. It's sort of a means towards the end. Um, kind of like we have a high view of the Bible, but we don't worship the Bible. That sort of thing. That's the Seventh Ecumenical Council. There's more, especially if you're Roman Catholic, but we're, we're not, so I'm not going to go there. Uh, there's many more, many more if, if you're Roman Catholic. The first seven are typically ones if you're Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, um, or Roman Catholic. You're going to say, I follow the first seven. But after that, it kind of got messy and eh. So there's nothing magical about the first seven. They are typically held to represent biblical Christianity well. But as you can get from these talks, I, I'm not trying to hide it. In fact, if anything, I'm trying to emphasize that it's messy. It's not always clear. There's better answers and worse answers. And then there's really bad answers. Um, but especially regarding how is Jesus God and human at the same time. Use your imagination. That baby's God. God pooped himself. Absolutely. Now, how do you imagine consciousness of Jesus? So if you want me to nerd out just for a second, this is usually where I take it. You know, do not think that Jesus, this is just a word of insight that I've had to figure out the hard way. If you tend to think that the son, Jesus, has two consciousnesses, you're showing an historian tendency. So I wouldn't go there. I would think of a twofold consciousness, perhaps, but a united consciousness, kind of like us. We're similar in this way. Um, so, like, traditional philosophy is going to say we have, like, an animal nature and a rational nature. Animals have an animal nature, obviously. It's instinctual. It's biological. There's nothing more than that. Rational nature is like understanding mathematics and seeing beauty and things and all that sort of thing. I have two a twofold conscience. I have an animal conscience. You see this? Where I, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat now. I don't have to think about it. It's just auto automatic. It's instinctual. But then I also, even when I'm hungry, I'm having all these animal-like reflexes. I, I can go, ooh, that's beautiful. Ooh, those fries look delicious. Right? And there's the rational. Um, so theologians like to use this as an analogy, kind of, for what's going on with Jesus. As he's growing up. Because you have to affirm the son of God grew in wisdom. 
What's going on there? God's holding the wet world together, but in virtue of taking on a human nature and not having the fullest capacity of that human nature yet, he's not aware of it. Kind of like when you're breathing, that animal instinct kicks in. I know that these words are loaded in our culture. I debated whether to use them. People are like, ah, I don't like that. But no, it's just, it just means like biological. And so there's one consciousness of the sun, and there's different layers of it. And just imagine that moment. Because, guys, you got to figure Jesus was hearing voices in his head going through school. you got to figure this, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. you got to use your imagination. Christians love to do this. What is it? You thought you had an awkward puberty. You're trying to figure out what it means to be human. human who am I? And Jesus, meanwhile, has this extra, I think I just made the world disappear for a second. That's not normal. <laughs> now, again, depending on which direction you go, you're going to show you know, more of a Lutheran or a Reformed emphasis. That's fine. I'm not going to discourage one or the other. Um, in, in, well, I don't in my classes, um, just because I don't know. So have fun with it. Uh, I think, is that it? Um, if that, yeah, we can end there. That's it. So that's the first four councils in a nutshell. And yes, I probably should have said going on, all these councils are talking about other things than God and Jesus. The most important stuff it's dealing with is what we just talked about, but they're also talking about, like, what does it mean to pastor a church? Um, can't, you know, pastors can't live with young girls. Like, there's seriously, the Council of Nicaea had to say that in one of the canons. Uh, no more pastors living with young girls, whatever that is. Lots of other stuff going on in these councils. We focused on Jesus um, as God-man, second two, and then the triune God, first two. Lots of others. Yeah, you can take a picture. Sorry, it's really uh, doesn't resolve well. I'm a little bit farther away from the wall. Those are the first seven councils. Nothing magical about it. I would just encourage you, the more you learn, the more you realize this is really reflecting the Bible way better than any other thing is. That's kind of my take. I'm like, I can't come up with better answers than these. But have fun. You can, you can try. Theologians have